Let me ask you please to turn to Habakkuk in the scripture. Turn to Habakkuk in chapter 2 please. I want to read beginning with verse 4. Habakkuk and chapter 2. I want to begin with verse 4 and read through the end of, of this chapter. I'll give you a second to turn to that and then I will pray. Please pray with me, Father in heaven, we confess that you've given us the strength that appears this morning to open this book and its pages and to turn to the right place, but we must say we need your help desperately as we hear it read, as we think about it. Father, I pray that in this moment that you would overcome any resistance we have to hearing about you and that you would enable us in the hearing to believe and that in the believing to live out so that you might be glorified. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Old Testament Habakkuk uh, prophets, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. This is God speaking. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. His soul there is... The one who doesn't have faith in him, the arrogant one, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who, never, who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. His, like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations, collects as his own peoples, all peoples as his own. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly rise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnants of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and, finds, and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You'll have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, and all the earth keeps silence before him. 
I want, if God will help me, simply to take up this verse 14. Uh, For the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, we've said in this prophecy that verse 4 in chapter 2 especially the end of it, the last part of it, but the righteous shall live by his faith, is really the hinge of this whole prophetic word. Everything turns on that that's most important. We don't get that, we don't get this. We don't get the word from Habakkuk if we don't understand that it's by faith that the righteous lives. That is, one's righteousness is from faith, not from one's own inherent righteousness or own inherent goodness. Remember we read from the book of Romans that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, both to Jew and Greek, from faith to faith. That is, this righteousness that is expressed in the gospel brings righteousness, this righteousness of God. And it comes by faith. We're trusting in the righteousness of Christ. So the righteous one will live by faith as Abraham did. The scripture tells us that Abraham believed God and was counted or credited or considered to him as righteousness. And so we, we, we trust God. And he is the one who gives us righteousness, right standing with him. And we know this comes to us through Christ. So the prophet Habakkuk learned this as well, that the righteous man will live by his faith. And not only to receive righteousness, but to live that out, to live out trusting God. Because see, Habakkuk's difficulty was that he knew God's character and promises. And he looked out in the place where he lived in ancient Judah, 600-ish B.C., and he didn't see the character of God in God's people, nor did he see the promises of God seemingly being fulfilled at that time. And so he began to wonder, God, why is it that you're silent? God, why is it that you're active, inactive at this particular point in time? All I see is violence among your people. All I see is injustice. All I see is iniquities. That is all kinds of sin. So we can only imagine the pride and the greed and the selfishness and the hatred and the sexual immorality and all of that that was going along. In the midst of this community, they paid lip service to God. And, and, and Habakkuk couldn't get that. God, why are you letting the people live like that? What's really going on? Why are you silent? Why are you inactive? Habakkuk had had known the great revival under King Josiah. He knew what it was like to live uh, under the uh, under the the, the authority of God. He knew what it was like to live in the midst of God's power and grace, and and he didn't see that. And so he, he cried out to God, "What is going on here? Why don't you act? Why don't you speak?" So you remember God comes to Habakkuk and he does speak and he says, I am acting. What I'm going to do is going to raise up these ungodly Babylonians, these very unrighteous idolaters, and they're going to come through and they're going to, in a sense, uh, level uh, Judah. And Habakkuk goes, okay, I get that a little bit. I understand that we deserve that. I understand that we deserve the kind of judgment. But how can you bring that by these ungodly ones, these, these Babylonians who are worse than we? And so he he says, he's just going to wait upon God to see what God is going to say to him. So God answers him. And he says, now don't live like the Babylonians. The first part of verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. He says, don't live like that. You may think 
that just because the Babylonians are really strong right now, you might think that just because the Babylonians seem to be taking over everything right now, you might think that just because the Babylonians are coming against Judah and capturing Judah, you might think that I favor the way they live. Because don't be confused by that. You live by faith in me. You trust me. You trust that I know what I'm doing. You trust that what I'm doing is righteous and good. You may not see it at the moment. You may not see it in the midst of this. But I want you to live by faith. Trusting in the promises that I've given you. Trusting in my word. Trusting in my character. All that I have said will come to pass. The Babylonians are coming. Trust me. Now to help Habakkuk's faith. God goes on and speaks to him. Even more, and he, he says, now the Babylonians will be judged too. So, so don't favor their, don't think I favor them. They're, they're going to get theirs. They're, they're going to, 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 to have all those that they've, they've, they've come against, come against them. And, and in their greed and their injustice and their violence and their manipulation and seduction and idolatry and all of that, they're going to be, they're going to be judged by that. Verse 13, for that. Verse 13, God says, behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. He says, I've decreed, I've ordained that everyone who does anything outside of faith in me will find that all of their works simply go up in smoke. That their labor and the weariness that it brings them is all for naught. It's for nothing. Nothing is good apart from me, God says, and I won't be mocked. Trust me. So that whatever it is that's done apart from faith in me, Habakkuk, please understand a day of reckoning is coming. Coming, A day will come when we will realize that, that everything done not through faith in God will go up in smoke and we'll realize that it's really for naught. That it's only that which is of him that's of value, of eternal value. We, we read this, for instance, in Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now you say, well, God, if you're going to build it, go ahead. <laughs> if you're going to watch the city, why can't I sleep? Well, he doesn't say you shouldn't be building and you shouldn't be watching. He said, but in your building and in your watching, because you're human beings made in the image of God, you do stuff. So in your doing and in your thinking, make sure it's consistent with who I am. Make sure that you're relying upon me. Make sure it's my wisdom. Make sure you're relying upon my strength. Make sure you're following after me. And then you see, in your doing, it will be blessed. In your watching, you'll be protected. But if you do it apart from me, we can build forever and it will just fall down ultimately. It will have no value. You can watch forever, but the enemies will still come and you won't be protected. He says, unless it's of me, it's of no eternal value. Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, he says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We know this. We know that those things that are just simply consistent with our own, that is apart from God, pleasures and desires, 
then, then eventually fade away. They don't have eternal value. He says, no, lay up treasures in heaven. That is, to just think about, pursue those things which are of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Oh, that's it. Pursue the very righteousness of God. He says, and these other things, whatever it is that you need, they'll be added in various kinds of ways. They won't just drop out of the sky, but they'll, they'll be added to you as needed. But, but if you set your heart on those, that's all you'll have. And at the end of the day, they're going to rust, and they're going to rot, and they'll be ultimately destroyed. Then the sobering line of Jesus. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? God was speaking to Habakkuk of that. I won't be mocked, he said. He says, those who, who, who I've ordained, I've, I've decreed, that those who live apart from me will see one day, maybe not today. In fact, it doesn't look like that on any given day. People are pursuing their own greed and their own glory all the time and seem to be succeeding. In fact, that seems to be a ticket for success in, 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 a, in a world like ours. But yet God says, no, 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 I, I won't be mocked. Don't, don't grab hold of that. That won't last. He says that to Habakkuk. He says, I have another plan. Verse 14. He says, for... I decreed that those who live apart from me will see everything go up in smoke because this is what I've decreed as well, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, if verse 4, the righteous will live by his faith, is the hinge, everything turns on that, this verse fuels that faith. This is the hope behind our faith. That a day will come when the glory of the Lord, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now that's an interesting expression, as the waters cover the sea. Because the sea is made up of the waters. If you take away the waters, you don't have the sea. If you don't see the sea, you don't, if you don't see the water, you can't see the sea. I mean, it's just, you go, what's this all about? Can't wait till Joyce tries to transcribe that from the sermon. She'll try, though. She's great. Um, and that's his point, isn't it? His point is that a day will come when what will cover the earth, what will be true of the earth, what will be most understood and seen and, 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 and obvious on the earth, just like water is obvious when you're on the sea, What's going to be obvious to you, can't be missed on the earth today, is the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Now, when we talk about glory, we're talking generally about that which is great about something. It's, it's glory. We can, we can tease and, and, and use the word glory in a little sarcastic way. My grandmother used to use this of my grandfather every Thanksgiving when she was trying to get him to help set the table. He would normally be asleep in his chair and the, she would say, there he is in all his glory. And what she'd mean by that is that's him. Now, she didn't quite mean his splendor, but she said, this is the best it gets to grandpa. You know, <laughs> That used to always scare me because when a kid, a little, little grandchild would run naked through the house, she'd say, there he is in all his glory. And 
I would confuse the naked child with my grandfather and glory and nakedness, and it would freak me out. But, uh, but the sense of glory is that's the essence of something. And when we think of it in the context of God, we're thinking of it in the context of that, of his splendor, of his majesty, that which is, is, is great of him. And of course, everything is great of God. And so he says, that's what's going to, going to happen. And there couldn't be anything better than that. In fact, all of history is moving towards this glory of God. In fact, God lives in a sense, very real sense, for his own glory. The Bible is, is about his glory. I've read this quote to you before a couple of times over the years, but, but it's, it's, it's very helpful. It comes out of a book by J.I. Packer called Hot Tub Religion. Um, uh, it's, it's a great book. If you haven't read it, you need to. Uh, just in terms of helping to, to hear and to summarize and to understand the whole, really, of the whole of the Christian life. And um, uh, I'm going to read. It's a long quote. Uh, you should read some of the books on preaching that I read because they talk about you and they say things like, people can't listen to long quotes anymore, so don't even try to read them. So I don't believe that about you, so listen. Prove all those books wrong for a minute. The title of this section that Packer has is is the main theme, meaning the main theme of the Bible. He says, we find this. The Bible is not primarily about man at all. Sometimes we think it is. I mean, we read it because we're interested in us. We're interested in finding out about us. And we want to know what life is about for us. And so so we read, how should we live? Uh, That's not a bad question to go to the Bible with. but, But it's not the first question to go to the Bible with. He says, the Bible is not primarily about man at all. Its subject is God. He is the chief actor in the drama, the hero of the story. The Bible is a factual survey of God's work in this world, past, present, and future, with explanatory comments from prophets, psalmists, wise men, and apostles. Its main theme is not human salvation. Now, we think it is, and it's about that. We wouldn't know about that unless we read the Bible. It's about that, but that's not its main theme. Human salvation is a means to another end. He writes this. Its main theme is not human salvation, but the work of God vindicating his purposes and glorifying himself in a sinful and disordered cosmos. He does this by establishing his kingdom, exalting his son, by creating a people to worship and serve him, and ultimately by dismantling and reassembling this order of things, thus rooting sin out of his world. It is into this larger perspective that the Bible fits God's work of saving man. It depicts God as more than a distant cosmic architect or a ubiquitous heavenly uncle or an impersonal life force. God is more than any of the petty substitute deities that inhabit our 20th century minds. He's the living God, present and active everywhere, Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. He gives himself a name, Yahweh. Which whether it be translated, I am that I am, or I will be that I will be. Hebrew means both. It's a proclamation of his self-existence and self-sufficiency. His omnipotence and his unbounded freedom. This world is his. He made it. He controls it. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11 His knowledge and dominion extend to the smallest things. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. The Lord reigns. The psalmist makes his unchangeable truth the starting point for 
his praise again and again. Though hostile forces rage and chaos threatens God, threatens God is king, therefore his people are safe, such as the God of the Bible. And the Bible's dominant conviction about him, a conviction proclaimed from Genesis to Revelation, is that behind and beneath all the apparent confusion of this world lies his plan. That plan concerns the perfecting of a people and restoring of a world through the mediating action of Christ. God governs human affairs with with this end in view. Human history is a record of the outworking of his purposes. History is his story, meaning this. The Bible's about God. When we go to it, yes, we read about people. We read about Abraham and Moses and David and Paul and Peter. We read about their lives, but not to learn about their lives, but to learn about God. In fact, they want you to learn about God. That's why they're living. That's why they were writing, so that you would, we would know about him. Even in the context of our salvation, that's to show how glorious and great God is. Not how glorious and great we are. We've proven otherwise but how glorious and great he is. It all revolves around himself. It all revolves around God. And that doesn't mean that God is selfish in the same way that you and I would be selfish if everything revolved around us. Everything should revolve around him. He is, in fact, the glorious one. Whose glory would you rather be pursued in the universe? Ours or God's? He pursues his glory because he is the glorious one. It would be horrible for us if God pursued any other righteousness than his own, any other love than his own, any other justice than his own, any other mercy than his own, any other goodness than his own. And so he pursues his own glory. He says, look look at me. And I'm going to reflect myself through all my creation. And that, you see, is our hope. That he'll do that. That was Habakkuk's hope. Habakkuk was waiting to see. Habakkuk says, okay, now you've said the glory of the Lord will cover, knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Okay, I'm all eyes. Let me see that. And he would see that. In some measure, I suppose, the Babylonians were coming. He would see the glory of God's justice. Because the Babylonians would be defeated. A day would come when literally they would see the handwriting on the wall. That's a Daniel pun, by the way, if you were catching any of these things. Um, See the handwriting. I appreciate those little chuckles. See the handwriting on the wall. They would refer to their doom... They would be ultimately defeated. In fact, the people would return to Judah, many of them. The city would be rebuilt. The temple would be built. But but not to the degree that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But there was a day. There was a day when some shepherds were in a field. And while they were in the field, there was an announcement. A great chorus of angels came and said, Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest on earth. Peace. Upon all those upon whom God's favor rests. Glory to God in the highest. Most certainly they were saying that. Oh yes, we're praising God for something that happened. But what they were praising God 
4 meant that God was glorious, that, that the glory of God was, was now being seen in, in some way that it hadn't before. And, and of course, we know the, the event about which those angels sang. It was the birth of this one Jesus, this one who was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, this one who was Emmanuel, God with us. Here he is, the very manifestation of Jesus, of the glory of God. And, and, and we get the sense that through him now, this very prophecy, through Habakkuk is being fulfilled that the glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. What did Jesus come to do? He came to what? Reveal his father. He came to make him known. He put it in the sense of I've come to, to glorify him. In fact, in John, in chapter 7 and verse 18, Jesus says this about himself. He says, the one who speaks on his own authority, seeks his own glory, But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. He was speaking of himself. He says, I'm not coming to speak concerning my own glory, but the one who sent me, the very glory of God. I want to reflect him. I want to manifest him. I want to make him known. In fact, as it comes close to our uh, to the crucifixion of Jesus, as he comes to, to bear our sin in John in chapter 12, Verse 27, uh, Jesus says this, thinking of the hour that is upon him. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He says, now, Father, I want people to see you now. Dare I quote from John 17, where we spent a number of months not too long ago. Verse 1, Jesus is praying. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. He says, I've come to glorify you. I've come to make you known. In fact, that's life eternal. There's no life apart from knowing you. And so, God, I've come now. Now glorify yourself in me so that they may know you and they may know that I'm the one that you've sent. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The author of Hebrews speaks of Jesus like this. Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, this is Jesus, the radiance, the splendor, the majesty of the glory of God. That's why Jesus could say, how many of you know what I'm going to say next? Think about it for a minute. That's why Jesus could say, yes, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. He was the very manifestation of the glory of God. And the glory of God was in Jesus. And it was veiled. Uh, What's the hymn? Veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. Veiled incarnate deity. See, couldn't see it all the time. There are times when they saw it though. 
when Jesus made water into wine, the scriptures, they saw his glory. I don't know exactly what they saw at that moment in time when he did that. But they saw the very glory of God. In the healings, they saw the very glory of God. They understood the, the, the authority of Jesus as he taught. This, is, this isn't like any other man. This is as God is speaking. And he could forgive sins. And, and he could walk on water. He can make the deaf to hear and the lame to walk and the blind to see. And so, so in the midst of all that, they saw the very glory of God. They said the, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God. And they said, oh, this is what's going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This. And then the cross. Uh, James Boyce, a uh, Presbyterian minister, it's not all that important, uh, now passed away uh, a number of years ago, writes this about the cross. How did Christ's work bring glory to God? It did so by revealing God, by revealing God himself clearly. Glorifying God means to acknowledge God's attributes or make God's attributes known. God's attributes are best seen at the cross of Christ. There above all other places, God's sovereignty, justice, righteousness, wisdom, and love are abundantly and unmistakably unmistakably displayed. We see God's sovereignty in the way in which the death of Christ was planned, promised, and then took place without the slightest deviation from the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning it or adjustment to meet some unforeseen circumstance. We know that. All the way in Genesis in chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, God makes the promise that one from the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. Right then, there's a promise made to Abraham. A promise made to Abraham that one of his seed will come. And that one, and through his seed, therefore, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That promise to Abraham. And we read then as we work our way through the scriptures increasingly prophecies of this one who is to come. He is to be a suffering servant. He is to be the one to take our iniquities upon him by his stripes. We will be healed. We read of that. This one to come. And he comes. The sovereignty of God working out all that according to his own plan. Without the cross, God could have forgiven our sins graciously to speak from a human perspective. But it would not have been just. Only in Christ is that justice satisfied. We see God's righteousness in recognition of the fact that only Jesus, the righteous one, could pay sin's penalty. It would be impossible for God to overlook sin and be just. He'd be merciful, but not just. And so, by way of Christ, he does everything. He's just, takes the penalty of sin, and loving. He doesn't put that penalty upon us. Thus, Paul could write in Romans 3 that he's both just and the justifier of all those who have faith in Christ. Boyce goes on. We see God's wisdom in the planning and ordering of such great salvation. We see his love. Only at the cross do we know beyond doubt that God loves us even as he loves Jesus. Thus, the glory of God. The Apostle Paul writes this of Jesus in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4 and verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a work of the Spirit. 
to enable us to see that Jesus is indeed the glory of God, the manifestation of his glory. But we have to confess, along with Habakkuk, that though we see much more than he saw, still we don't see the knowledge of the glory of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But it's spreading. How does it spread? Well, it spreads by way of the gospel. How does the gospel spread? The gospel spreads by way of the spirit at work in the word and us taking this message of the glory of God to the ends of the earth. And as it spreads, you see, as the gospel spreads, the knowledge of the glory of God is covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now we know a day will come when we'll see that clearly, when the earth will be transformed and when we'll live on this new earth forever and ever and there will be no more injustice and no more violence and no more greed and no more crying and no more sin, no more any of that. But everywhere we look and everywhere we turn, everyone will know because we'll see it. The glory of God, which is indeed our hope. But we live now by a faith that's informed by that hope. Believing that everything, even the coming of the Babylonians, is part of this plan. We sing uh, about this when we sing one of the great Christmas hymns called Joy to the World. Now, we often miss it. I've shared this a number of years ago, but it's time to do it again. We often miss this truth because we breathe badly when we sing. Uh, It's the fourth verse of Joy to the World. And I have to tell you, when you sing that from now on, you cannot breathe in the whole verse. Because if you do, you'll miss the truth of it. It'll sound better, and you may live longer, but, but you'll miss the theological truth. He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove. Now, we normally breathe there. It's really a bad place to breathe. Now, it's a good place to breathe, musically, I suppose, but theologically, it's a bad place to breathe. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. See, we've got to put all that together. All the time, even now, God is using the nations to prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Now, like the Babylonians, it may be, in the con- it may be a negative kind of proof. It may be, don't be like that. And we go, that's not glorious. That's not the glory of God. It shouldn't be that way. And the failure of the nations is continuing to prove the gloriousness of the righteousness and love of God. When we flee to Christ, we're leaving that behind because we realize that which we're leaving behind isn't really glorious. It really isn't it. You may want to be the Babylonians for a time because they seem so strong and wise and they're they're ruling everybody, but, but, but their work will go up in smoke. And when the Spirit of God comes and dawns upon us, comes to us, and often it's a dawning. I love that little expression, dawning. This time of year, I often sit in restaurants for breakfast way too long with people, and and the dawn happens, and I start out in the breakfast, and it's dark out the window by which I'm sitting, and then later on it's light, and I don't know when that happened. It just sort of dawned. 
on me. And so when this word, when it comes to us and we see it and we leave that behind, because that's not glorious. Now this morning we have before us something, if you will, to help us with this understanding that Christ is indeed the very glory of God. We know that he's present with us. He gave us this meal so that we would know his presence and that we might be helped in our faith, this presence to know the very glory of God. Remember the night in which Jesus was betrayed. He took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is given for you. And in this to express the very glory of God. And in the same way, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he took this cup and he said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this, he said, in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now though we don't see the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea, this Jesus says, I give you so you'll trust me that I'm at work, that I'm not silent, that it's growing and covering, and a day will come when I'll return, and that's all you'll know. That's all you'll see. So he says, I want in the midst of this meal for you to, to take this bread and this juice, and though you can't see me, see this for a minute, and though this is just bread and juice, to think of me and know that I am really here. And though you can't touch me, touch this bread and this juice and know that I'm that close. Though you can't smell me, smell this bread and juice and know that I'm that close. And know that you can't see me as you take this in you. Know that I abide in you. That I'm the very glory of God. And you in me will spread the glory of God so that my glory, my Father's glory the very glory of God, his knowledge will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea pray with me, Father in heaven pray for me, for us that you would grant to us a sense yes, it's that glory for which I pray to come that everything that I see that everything that I know will reflect you, God, that's our hope. Nothing else can satisfy. So I pray for me, for us, that you grant us this hope, trusting that that day will come, trusting that even through us in these days that your glory will spread, that the knowledge of the glory of God will spread through us, through your church. Work in us in that way, I pray, please. Set this bread, this juice apart, God, in a particular way that will increase our faith, will grant us a deep sense of your presence, Jesus, with us. 
you here. Work in us now. This I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace. Evangelical Presbyterian Church is the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners without hope except in his sovereign mercy. May you understand that without Christ you are lost, corrupt, condemned. But he says, come if you believe in me, if you trust in me as I'm offered in the gospel as the savior of sinners, the one who died for you, the one who lives, intercedes for you. You desire to live in such a way that glorifies God. That's true for you. Let me ask you to come. These two sections can come down the row. Aisle to my left, these down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, let resonate in your head. Christ is the manifestation of the glory of God. Please come.